Well, if you have your Bible with you, turn me to 1 John chapter 2. We're going to continue this verse-by-verse study through this, well, this is an amazing little book, just five chapters, but it is packed full. And uh, I was thinking this week that I I like this book probably because I think John might, well, he's certainly wrote the way that I think, and that is all over the place. Um, this book, you know, sometimes some books of the Bible are just very neat and orderly and well thought out. Um, I, I don't really, you, you know, usually describe First John that way. Uh, John is like, it's like a big, like, uh, I don't know, he's cycling around and, and uh, he keeps hitting on the same topics over and over. And then I think what happens is he says something that makes him think of something else. And then he goes on on that. And I, I like that about this book. Well, it's been a few weeks since we were last looking at this book. And uh, so what I would like to do is just briefly refresh our memories of where we left off last time. In chapter 2, verses 18 through 27, John was focusing on how we are to remain or how we are to abide in Christ. And in those verses, John, uh, he mentioned two different gifts that God has given to us in order to remain or to abide in him. Anybody remember what those gifts were? It's okay if you don't. It's been like four weeks, so... And that's a long list. Two things. <laughs> two, two gifts that God gave you to remain in him. He gave you his word, and he gave you his spirit. I heard it. So you're just being shy. You knew it. Uh, yes, he gave us his word, and he gave us his spirit to help us remain or abide in him. And as we pick up our text this morning, John is going to continue to urge his readers to abide in Christ. Let's go ahead and begin our time together in verse 28 of chapter 2. John says, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. So, once again, John addresses you know, his readers as his little children. And, and by now, you've heard me say this. I'll probably say it every time we come across it. But this is a term of endearment from the older apostles, showing his care and his concern for these believers. And picking up right where he left off in verse 27, John is calling them to abide in him, to abide in Christ. But notice the reason. Notice the reason that John gives here for abiding. He wants them to abide in Christ so that they will have confidence when Christ returns, so that they won't be ashamed when he comes. John wants his readers to understand that that Jesus is coming again. Do you believe that? He's coming again. Today is Palm Sunday. Uh, It's a day that we remember when Jesus came riding on a donkey into Jerusalem. And and the crowds were gathered around and they were laying their coats before him and they're waving palm branches in the air, right? And they're shouting out, Hosanna in in the highest, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Have you ever wondered, have you ever wondered why Jesus chose to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey? Ever wondered about that? Why not a chariot? He's the king, right? He's the king coming in. 
Why not a chariot? Why not a horse? Why not a car? No. <laughs> Why didn't he walk? He walked everywhere else. What, why did he choose to ride on a donkey that day? Well, first of all, he chose to ride on a donkey because he was choosing to fulfill what had been written about him over 500 years earlier by the prophet Zechariah. In Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, we read these words, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Not just a donkey, the, the foal of, of a donkey. Can you imagine that? A grown man sitting on the foal of a donkey. I guess that would be pretty humble, wouldn't it? Jesus was declaring himself as their king and the fulfillment of this prophecy in Zechariah. But there's another interesting thing about donkeys. In the ancient world, during times of peace, kings would often ride on a donkey. It's the way that King David had his son Solomon presented when he was being announced as the new king. He said, go get my donkey for my son to ride in on. But in times of war, the kings would come on a horse that was fit for battle. And so 2,000 years ago, when Jesus came riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, he was coming in peace, wasn't he? He was coming actually to make peace, right? Jesus came to make peace between sinful man and a holy God. The triumphal entry was a day that, that John would have clearly remembered well. He was there. He saw the crowds. He saw Jesus riding on the donkey. But now, some 50 or 60 years later, John is not thinking any longer about Jesus' first coming. He is thinking about Jesus' second coming. And in Revelation chapter 19, we're told that when Jesus returns, he's not going to be riding on a donkey, is he? In Revelation 19, we're told that he'll be riding on a white horse fit for battle. The next time Jesus comes, he's not coming as the peaceful servant. He's coming as a conquering king. And for many Christians, when you hear that, or when you sing about it in the song we just sang, you're filled with joy and excitement, right? He shall return in robes of white. The blazing sun shall pierce the night. And I will rise among the saints, my gaze transfixed on Jesus' face. Some of you, you think of that, and you're like, yes, I cannot wait, right? What an amazing day that's going to be for those who know Christ. And John wants his readers to have confidence when they think about that. That's what he wants. But he knows that there are some who do not have that confidence. There are some who, although they're believers, for a variety of reasons, they might be filled with, with more shame than confidence. Maybe it's because of sin in their lives, or maybe it's because of sins of commission, things that they're doing, or maybe it's sins of omission, right? They're ashamed of what they're not doing for Christ. How about you? When you think about seeing Jesus, are you filled with confidence or is shame 
a better word to describe how you feel. When I read this verse, I can't help but, but think of, uh, well, it's a video, a, a picture that, uh, that I saw on, on YouTube. And uh, I think it pretty accurately captures this, this idea of feeling shame on the, at the thought of your master's return. So let's just go, it's very short. Let's go ahead and just watch this video real quick. Who did this mess? Who did this? Cody, did you make this mess? Murphy, did you make this mess? Maggie, did you make this mess? Somebody made it. Who made it? Who made this mess? think we know who made the mess. <laughs> well, <laughs> it's a great video, isn't it? Hopefully, hopefully that is not how you are feeling about seeing Jesus face to face. You know, hopefully that doesn't describe how you're going to feel when he comes, that you need to hide in shame. That's definitely, definitely not how John wants us to feel. John says to abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. He doesn't want you to feel shame, believer. He wants you to feel confidence. But notice what he says is the key. What's the key to the confidence in this verse? The key to having confidence is not found in trying to make sure that your good deeds somehow outweigh your bad. It's not found in trying to see how much you can do for Christ. Our confidence is found in doing life with Christ. The key, he says here, is found in what? Abiding in him. So let me ask you this. How is that going for you right now? Be honest with yourself. Are you abiding in Christ? Are you resting in him? Are you holding on to the truth about who Jesus is as revealed in his word? Are you enjoying time in his presence? Are you learning from him, following him? Are you growing in your relationship with Christ? John wants us to have confidence in our relationship with Jesus confidence about seeing him face to face. And you know, only you can really answer that question honestly, right? I can't tell if you're feeling, you know, ashamed or if you're feeling confident about meeting Christ, but you know in your heart whether which one of those things best describes where you're at. And make no mistake, make no mistake, friends, we are going to see Jesus face to face. I asked earlier if you believe it. The truth of the matter is it doesn't matter if you believe it. You are going to see him face to face. And whether we're going to see him as part of that final generation that sees him when he returns, and I certainly hope that we are that generation, don't you? Wouldn't that be amazing? Wouldn't it be amazing if Jesus came back before Easter? That would be awesome. I would love that. Or, 
And, and, and to be honest with you, the odds are pretty good based on the fact that it's been 2,000 years. There's a good chance that you're gonna meet Jesus face-to-face -face the same way that every generation before you did. You're gonna meet him face-to-face -face through your own death. But make no mistake, you are gonna meet Jesus face-to-face. -face. And the only question that remains is, will I be confident at that point or am I going to be ashamed? John wants us to be confident, and he says the key to that is found in abiding in him, resting in him. Well, in the next several verses, John's gonna remind these readers about who they are, who they really are as followers of Jesus Christ, and he's gonna remind them of the difference that that should make in the way that we live our lives. Because as we've said throughout this series, right living matters. It matters. But what we're going to see in these verses is that right living is what follows those who are in a right relationship with God. You don't want to get those things mixed around. Right living is the result of being in a right relationship with God. Let's look at verse 29. Verse 29, he says, if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. John says that you know, you know that God is righteous, right? Like he's asking the question, you know this, don't you? And you can almost imagine the first people who received this letter reading it and their heads are kind of like, yeah, yeah, we, we know that. Of course, John, God is perfect. God is holy. Everything he does is righteous. And so then John says, well, when you see someone who practices righteousness, you may be sure that that person has been born of him. When you see someone whose life is characterized by righteous living, John says that you can be sure that that person has been born again. Now, as we make our way through the, the verses we're covering, covering today, this is going to become even more evident. But you need to know that, that what John is addressing here is another one of the false teachings that was being pushed by those so-called you know, enlightened false teachers who were misleading the people. And I, I, we talked about it in chapter one. He, he comes right out of the gate addressing the fact that these false teachers were saying that Jesus didn't come in the flesh, a, a heretical teaching. Well, here's another heretical teaching that they were pushing. These false teachers were saying that it's possible you can have a relationship with God without it changing the way you live your life. You see, they believed, they believed that all physical matter is evil. All physical matter is evil and only the spirit is good. By the way, that's why they didn't believe that Jesus could come in the flesh because in the flesh that would make him evil. So they, 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 he must just be a spirit being. And so they concluded because the flesh is, is evil, it really doesn't matter what you do with your body. It doesn't matter because the body, the flesh, is evil. Well, the problem with that teaching, however, is that it's not true. It's not true. And John is going to address that in these verses. Can you imagine if that's how you believed? Imagine how you'd live your life. Probably don't have to imagine too far. There are people who are living their lives that way today, aren't they? It doesn't matter. Do whatever you want. John says that's a heretical teaching. 
Here in verse 29, John says that, that practicing righteousness or right living is evidence that a person has been born of him, that they have been born again. I love that description, by the way, of Christians, born again. When I was a, when I was a young kid, I always thought it was a weird thing to say. People would come up and say, are you a born again Christian? I'm like, I, yeah, I'm a Christian. Yeah, sure. Actually, now as an adult, when you, if you ask me, are you a born-again Christian, I think I might say, is there any other kind? You know, If you're not born again, you're not a Christian, right? So yes, I'm a born-again Christian. Well, in John chapter 3, Jesus was talking to Nicodemus. They were having a private conversation, and Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And in John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, John said, But to all who did receive him, Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood or of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Those who put their faith in Jesus are born again. Not talking about a physical birth, right? It's a spiritual birth. Birth. They become spiritually alive when they put their faith in Christ. They become, he says, children of God. And so John says here in verse 29, when you see someone whose life is characterized by practicing righteousness, you may be sure that that person has been born again. It's evidence that they are God's children. But I don't want you to miss this. This is really important. Practicing righteousness is evidence of being born again, not a requirement for being born again. We don't practice righteousness in order to be saved, right? We practice righteousness because we are saved. We're God's children, right? I mean, you kind of know this to be true. Like, we, we inherit traits from our parents, don't we? Like, whether you like it or not, some of you are bald. Um, some of you, you know, you talk like your parents, you act like your parents, and you said you never would act like your parents, but you do, right? And one day you wake up and you're like, oh my goodness, I've become my dad. <laughs> I've become my mom. That's what happens. It's in your DNA, Right? Some of it, some of it, you're just blaming on your parents and you really need to work on fixing in your life. You can't blame your parents that you blow up every time, right? You might've inherited that attitude, but you need to take control of it and give it to the Lord, right? But, but we inherit a DNA from our parents and, and those who are God's children inherit God's character. They have his Holy Spirit dwelling within them. Now, when we get to verses four through 10, John is, is gonna come back to this whole theme of, of practicing righteousness, and we're going to talk a lot about it for those last several verses. And he's going to talk about how we should think about sin. But first, but first, John is going to pause for just a moment in these first few verses of chapter three, just to reflect on how great it is that we are children of God. Chapter three, verse one, he says this, see what kind of love the father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Are. Let, let me just stop there for, for a second. John says, Can you believe 
how much God loves us? Can you believe it? Can you believe how much God loves us? We're his children. We're his children. He calls us his kids. And so we are. Does that blow you away? We are the sons and daughters of the God of the universe. You got to let that sink in. You got to let, like, soak on that for a minute. For those of you who are parents, think about how much you love your kids. You don't love your kids even close to as much as God loves you. You're crazy about them, right? Now think about the fact that if you've been born again, God loves you as his child. You know, some of you need to be reminded just how crazy God is about you. He loves you. He loves you. You, you need a slide on the screen. I wish I had made one that says, God loves you. Just imagine it for a moment. Close your eyes. It says it on the screen right now. God loves me, right? I'm his child. I'm his kid. As Clayton Putnam would say, I'm his baby, you know? If you've ever had the privilege of being introduced to Clayton Putnam, you know who hasn't had the privilege of being introduced to Clayton Putnam here, right? You know that when you meet, in fact, I tested it this week. I called him to ask him if it would be okay for me to share this. And I said, he answered the phone and I said, who am I talking to? And he said, you're talking to Clayton Lewis Putnam. Child, you got it. You've heard it. He's Clayton Lewis Putnam, child of God. It's pretty awesome, isn't it? You know why? Because Clayton understands that that is a title that we should be proud of. You should, you should, we should all do that. Like, I am Chris Blanche, child of God. Daniel Dalton, child of God. Vicki Cooper, child of God. We could shorten it to Cog. <laughs> Chris Blanche, Cog. <laughs> I don't think people would understand. <laughs> Truth is, they don't understand that either, right? And we're going to talk about that later in the text. But it is a, it is a title that we should be proud of. It's more, it's, it's more important than any BA, BS, PhD, or MD you could put behind your name. You're a child of God. It's the greatest title that you have. It's amazing. Well, verse 1 continues, and John says, the reason why the world doesn't know us is that it did not know him. So you could call yourself child of God of the world. They'd be like, I don't even know what you're talking about. In John chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, John says, He, Jesus, was in the world, and the world was made through him. And yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But, we love this verse, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Brothers and sisters, those who do not know God, they are not going to truly know or understand us either. And we always seem so surprised by that. Like, why doesn't the world understand us? They don't understand you because they're, they don't know God. And you can say, like, oh, I'm a child of God. They're like, that's weird. That's weird. Because they don't know him. If they knew him, they would celebrate that with you. If they don't know God, how are they going to understand what it means to be a child of God? But worse than not knowing or understanding us, Jesus says that the world 
is going to persecute us in the same way that they persecuted him. In John chapter 15, Jesus said, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. And in verse 20, he said, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Now, we don't, probably nobody like, what's your favorite verse in the Bible? <laughs> yeah, they persecuted Jesus, so they're going to persecute me. Really looking forward to that, right? It's not, it's not on your top five verses. But it's a fact, right? And we need to know it. We just need to expect it. Well, in verse two, John continues, and he says, beloved, again, he just loves these people, doesn't he? Beloved, we are God's children now. We are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we shall see him as he is. Wow, that is a great verse. You know, that could be one of your favorite verses. First of all, John says that we are God's children now. It's not something we're waiting for. Like one day we're going to be God's children. If you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are God's child right now. But then John says, and what we will be has not yet appeared. John says, and I love this because this is John the apostle, right? Don't you love the fact that John doesn't know everything? It's great. It makes me feel better. John says, we don't even know all the details about what God has in store for us later. He hasn't revealed that to us yet. But we do know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. I, I, wow, I just can't even get my head around what that's gonna be like. There's something about seeing Jesus in all his glory, Right? When your eyes see Jesus for the first time unveiled and you see him in all his glory, something is going to happen. I think God is going to transform us in an instant because we couldn't behold his glory as we exist right now. You know, it's going to be amazing. When we see him in his glorified state, John says, we shall be like him. Man, that should get you excited, right? In Philippians chapter three, Paul says, our citizenship is in heaven, right? And from heaven, from it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. Man, what an amazing hope we, the children of God, have. What an amazing hope. Which is why John says in verse three, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Do you have that hope? You're looking forward to Jesus transforming you and making you like him? John says that when we think about what the Lord has in store for us, his children, it stirs our hearts towards what? Holiness, right? When we think about being in his presence and seeing him in the fullness of his glory, our hearts long to be pure, just as he is pure. You know, it's really good to take time to think about all that God has in store for us. I've heard it said that some people are so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. I think 
a lot of us could stand to be a little more heavenly minded, you know? Because John says, when you think about what God has in store for you, it actually changes the way you live here on earth. Well, now as we turn our attention to to verses four through 10, John's gonna return now to his focus on practicing righteousness. And he's gonna talk about how we should think about sin. But as we make our way through these verses, I want want you to, to remember the backdrop. Remember what John is dealing with here. Okay, remember the false teachers. Remember what they're teaching the people. Remember that he's, he's correcting this whole idea that you, you don't have to worry about sin, that you can just live your life any way you want. That's the backdrop of what he's addressing here in these verses. And so in verse four, John says, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Why? Because sin is lawlessness. Now, in these next several verses, John is is gonna draw a contrast between those who practice righteousness and those who practice lawlessness. In the previous verse, verse three, we saw that those who are God's children, they have a desire to be pure, right? Just as he is pure. In chapter two, verse 29, one of the first verses we looked at this morning, we saw that those who practice righteousness have been born of God, that they are children of God. Of God. But here, John draws a contrast and he says that those who practice sin, they are practicing lawlessness. They're living their lives with total disregard for God's commands. I don't even feel like, do we, do we even have to read the rest of this to conclude that if you're living your life in total disregard for God's commands, there's a pretty good chance you don't know him, right? We're gonna read it anyway, but I just... <laughs> I'm just saying. They're not following Christ's teachings. They're not trying to walk in obedience to the Lord. John says that they are practitioners of lawlessness. We're not talking about somebody who's like, oh man, I totally blew it today. I, I was yelling at my kids and I just, I totally wasn't acting like Christ. Or, that, that, that's not, he's, we're talking about people who are practicing sin. And he says, everybody who practices sin practices lawlessness. Now look at what he says in verse five. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins and in him there is no sin. And so if we're practicing lawlessness, if we're practicing sin, we are completely going against both the mission and the nature of Jesus Christ. Jesus was completely sinless, right? That's why, he was, that's why he was able to be our substitute because he was perfectly sinless. John says that he came to do what? To take away sin. So the idea that you could just live in sin, that's ridiculous. Jesus came to get rid of sin. And so in verse six, he says, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Wow. Whew. Read that again. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. And no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Those who abide in Jesus will not keep on sinning. 
But then he says that those who do keep on sinning, they don't really know him. They don't know Jesus. And I can imagine that some people hearing these words could be thinking, yikes, I sin. Sin every day. I mess up all the time. I sinned this morning on the way to church. I was swearing at the guy in front of me who was driving too slow, and I have to be on time for church. (laughs) Because arriving on church glorifies God more than not swearing at the guy in front of you. I don't know how that works. We all blow it, right? We all sin. John has made it abundantly clear in this letter abundantly clear. And if you've missed the first you know, couple weeks of this series, you know, go back and watch them. You read the end of chapter one and the beginning of chapter two. We all have sinned and we will all continue to struggle with sin as long as we are in these earthly bodies. John's not talking about sinless perfection here. He's talking about those who keep on sinning, those who practice sin, who practice lawlessness. He's talking about those whose lives are not characterized by righteousness, they're characterized by lawlessness. Now, if that characterizes your life, then you should be saying, yikes, right? John's saying that those who abide in Christ will not continue to live their lives in habitual sin. You cannot, think about this, you can't be simultaneously abiding in Christ and living in habitual sin. You can't be doing both those things at the same time, can you? Ah, just spending time with Jesus. I'm with him right now and I am sinning. That doesn't work, right? If you're walking in the spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. You won't. The problem is, we have a habit of stopping our walking in the Spirit. And you can be sure that at any moment while you are sinning, you are not walking in the Spirit at that moment. Make sense? You can't simultaneously be abiding in Christ and living in habitual sin. Now, it doesn't mean we won't struggle, right? We're gonna struggle. But as we abide in Him, He is gonna lead us towards holiness. He's gonna lead us towards righteous living. I hope this is encouraging to you. Like, I I think this passage is amazingly encouraging. I'm a child of God. Really? That's amazing, right? I I get to spend time with him and abide with him, and, and God is leading me towards righteous living. This is exciting stuff. Verse seven, he says, little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. John loves these believers, right? He loves them. And so he doesn't want them to be led astray by these false teachers. Let no one deceive you. And I can tell you, he has got these these teachers in his mind right now as he's saying this stuff. He's picturing these, these false teachers who are telling you, oh yeah, do whatever you want, sin however you want. It's like, don't listen to them. Don't let them deceive you. Right living matters. The Apostle Paul was addressing something similar in Romans chapter six. People were saying like, man, grace is good, right? We like grace. And, and, and God gives us grace when we, when we sin, so we should sin more, 
Like, can you imagine? It's like, it's so ridiculous, isn't it? And so Paul says in Romans 6, are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? By no means. How ridiculous. That's not in Paul's version. (laughs) He says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Brothers and sisters, right living matters. And just in case, just in case we haven't taken John seriously up to this point, he's about to really get our attention as we move into verse eight. Whew. Whoever makes a practice of sinning, he says, is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Wow, we don't like to think about that. We, we, think, we like to think, well, there's the, there's the children of God and there's those who are not. And John says, no, you don't understand. There's the children of God and there's the children of Satan. It's like, wow, I'm not perfect, but I'm not a child of Satan. And John says, yeah, actually you are. Yeah, you are. In fact, we all were. And we were all slaves to unrighteousness, right? Doing the works of Satan before God came into our lives and we were reborn and became children of God. That's what the scriptures teach. John wants his readers to understand that that this heretical teaching that you can somehow live in habitual sin while following the Lord is, is a teaching that comes straight from the heart of Satan. That's exactly what Satan would want people to believe. Oh, you gave your life to Christ? Well, let me see if I can render you ineffective by telling you, oh, now that you're saved, you can do whatever you want. Go sin sin it up. It doesn't matter. That's a teaching straight from Satan because it's going to render you useless for building God's kingdom. And it's going to give a black eye to the church and to Christianity. And John wants them to know that those who live this way are not God's children. They are of the devil. And by the way, just in case you think that John is just taking it a little too far here, maybe like that's a little much, John, right? He learned this from Jesus. John didn't make this up. Like he's like, oh, I remember when Jesus was talking, he said this. In John chapter eight, Jesus has a dialogue with some of the religious leaders. And we don't have time to read the whole chapter, but I would encourage you to go back and read John chapter eight. It's powerful. Um, I'm just gonna read a little portion of it to you. In John chapter 8, and you can turn there if you want, John chapter 8, I'm going to begin reading in verse 39. So Jesus is talking to these religious leaders. Go back and read the the whole context. But in verse 39, they answered him and said, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. Okay. So then they said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality, which by the way, is their way of getting a real personal dig at at Jesus, right? Because you guys know that that Mary and Joseph weren't yet married, right, when she became pregnant. And people knew this. And so they're like, well, we weren't born of sexual immorality, right? We have one father, even God. 
And in verse 42, Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Then he asked a question. He says, why do you not understand what I say? It was clearly a rhetorical question because he doesn't give them time to answer. He answers it for them. He says, it's because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks about his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. Wow. Those are some heavy, heavy words from Jesus. And who's he talking to? The religious leaders of the day. Why? Because they were leading people away from where true salvation is found. It's found in Jesus. And anybody who is misleading God's people, Jesus is going to have these same words for. You're a child of Satan. Those who practice sin and they lead people away from Christ are not children of God. They are of the devil. And they are being used to accomplish Satan's desires. John says that these false teachers fall into that camp. Notice here that John gives us another reason, though, why Jesus came. In verse 5, he said that Jesus came to take away sins, right? And then here in verse 8, he says that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. He came to destroy sin. And so in verse 9, John says, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. God's children are not going to live in sin because God's Holy Spirit, his seed, abides in them, right? God's children are not going to live in habitual sin that, that, that Jesus came to destroy, right? We talked about it earlier, the, the idea that we have God's DNA in us leading us towards holiness and righteousness. And when we sin... You know this if you're a follower of Jesus. You know if you're a child of God, when you sin, he convicts us of our sin, doesn't he? He leads us to repentance. Verse 10, last verse. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. John concludes this, this section by saying that you can tell those who are God's children and those who are not. And he gives us two evidences, right? The first, those who practice uh, righteousness, uh, excuse me, those who do not practice righteousness, rather, are not God's children because right living matters, right? And then the second one, those who do not love God's children are not God's children, if you don't love God's children, you're not God's child. Having right relationships with other believers matters. It matters. And that's a topic that we're going to explore further the next time we continue our study in this letter, in the rest of chapter 3. Let me close with this. What are we supposed to take away from this, from this passage today? What are we supposed to take away? 
Well, I really, I told you already, I love this passage. I think John's heart is pretty clear here. He wants us to abide in Christ. Amen? This is what John wants. He wants us to abide in Christ because he knows if you do that, all that other stuff is gonna take care of itself if you're abiding in him. If you're a follower of Jesus, you can thank God that you have been born again, that you are a child of God. God has given you a new life. And you know what? Introduce yourself that way, you know, like, like Clayton. Bear that title with, with, with pride. Not pride because you earned it, but just like, I'm so grateful. What a gift that God allows me to be called his child. Ask the Lord to continue to work in you, helping you to practice righteousness. Like invite his spirit to do that, right? Search me and know me. See if there's any wicked way in me, right? That's what we want God to do. Make us more and more like his son. Ask him to reveal any areas of your life right now which would cause you to feel shame at the thought of seeing him. Maybe he'll reveal something to you. Like, yeah, that's, that's an area that I know that the Lord wants to work on in my life. Thank him for how much he loves you, right? That, I love that verse. Oh, see what love the Father has given to us that we are called his children. Take time to meditate on the significance of that statement that you're a child of God, sons and daughters. Ask him to increase your passion for purity and and holy living as you think about what he has in store for you one day. And finally, ask him to increase your love for others. What does John have to say to us? Abide in him. Abide in him. Stay close to Jesus. Walk with him. Learn from him. Enjoy, you know, fellowship with him. Enjoy your relationship with Christ. It's a gift. And I'm telling you that if you do this, if you abide in him and you rest in him, you spend time with him and you you rest, if you abide in him, right? Abide in him, all those other things take care of themselves. They will, I promise, I promise. we're, We're spending way too much work, too much energy trying to figure out like, how do I fix what's wrong with me? How do I get better at being a Christian? Abide in him. Abide in him. Abide in him, my brothers and sisters. Abide in him. Amen? All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, wow, I just thank you so much for John's words here. What an incredible reminder from the, from the heart of this, this saint, nearing the end of his life, caring for this, these believers who are being misled and misguided. It is such encouraging words here that we are your children. We've been born again. That you're doing a work in our lives and purifying us and helping us to walk in righteousness and to practice righteousness. And oh God, would you continue to do that work? I'm so thankful for John's emphasis on abiding that he didn't say, you need to spend more time reading your Bible. You need to spend more time doing this. You need to spend more time doing that. He said, abide. And 
And God, I just believe that as we rest in you and we lean into you and we enjoy fellowship with you, and yes, we, we listen to you as we study your word and we talk to you in prayer. and We stop treating it like a, a checklist, but we really treat this like the relationship that it is. I'm confident, Lord, that you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, are going to make us more and more like your son, Jesus. That our lives will look more and more like him. Hopefully, by the time we see you face to face, and in that moment when we are made like you, and we, we, we're, that moment of glorification Hopefully, you won't have as much work to do as you did today. Hopefully, we'll be a lot more like your son by the time we meet him than we even are at this moment. It's a work that we know you'll do as we abide in you. So thank you, Jesus. And it is in your name that we pray these things. Amen.